Next on Light on the Hill, something everyone should know about Israel and the Jews. I have found that peace only comes from you. I have found that joy only comes from you. Cause all I need is Welcome to Light on the Hill with Pastor James Cadiz. We've got an exciting study on last day's Bible prophecy for you today. We're told that in the last days, there will be many false teachers coming out of the woodwork and dropping like flies. This is happening even now, but we're also given a picture of what awaits the nation of Israel. I'm glad to say it's a joyous end. Here's Pastor James in Zechariah 13. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. It's very interesting to see the picture that that's speaking about. When we're talking about Jerusalem proper, understand that when we talk about this, and you read this from a prophetic perspective, the center of this, right? The epicenter of it all is the Temple Mount. So when he talks about cleansing Jerusalem from the false prophets, the symbol of the false prophets, the names of the false prophets, we are talking about the cleansing of the Temple Mount itself. Right now on the Temple Mount, you know the very thing that keeps the temple from being rebuilt? In Arabic, we call it Halam al-Sharif, right? It's referred to as the Golden Dome. Don't say the Mosque of Omar. It's a very offensive term, right? That's keeping that from happening. The existence of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is very close to that. Walk just a few feet away. Keeps any structure of the temple from being built. Those two structures have to go away before the temple itself is, is built and the outer and inner courts are built. It won't work if those structures are still there. Now, there are some crazy, insane ideas that it could be built on the city of David. <laughs> it's, just, it's just crazy. There's no, it doesn't even make sense. It, there's no biblical uh, precedent for any of that kind of nonsense, right? But understand this. God says it right here in Zechariah. He's going to remove the pagan symbols. He's going to remove the names for those pagan symbols. Here's something people don't recognize about Al-Haram al-Sharif the Golden Dome. Here's something people don't recognize about Al-Aqsa Mosque. Those mosques were structures that were built in the name of the false prophet Muhammad. People don't recognize that. When you don't know enough of the history about it, you will not recognize the fact that those structures were built in the name of a false prophet. And here in Zechariah, God says, I will clear those symbols and I will clear the names that they represent, they will be removed. I don't know about you, but that's why I tend to be excited about the news that I'm hearing right now with whether it be Ben Gavir, who is for the first time a member of the Knesset who is being as aggressive as he is, walking on the Temple Mount, demanding that people are, are able, Jews are able to worship on the Temple Mount, right? And pretty much not allowing 
the typical narrative to take place with respect to what happens on the Temple Mount. We are moving in that direction. We are watching God's prophetic word beginning to take place. We are moving in that general direction. Now, I want to I caution everybody not to be really excited about the building of the temple, other than we should be excited in that it is another sign that we can look to in knowing that Jesus is going to rapture his church soon, right? Because remember, we know that the final Antichrist won't even make himself known. He, he won't be revealed to the world until we're actually raptured, per 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. But what is so remarkably interesting about this particular aspect is, yes, we should be excited because it means that our rapture is coming soon, but we shouldn't be so excited about the building of this structure because what people forget is the building of this temple will not be the temple that is instituted symbolically to point people to the Messiah. This is the temple that will be built for the final Antichrist. Because per Daniel, Revelation 13, he's going to set himself up in the temple and demand to be worshipped. Matthew chapter 24 talks about this, right? It's the first sign that that generation of Jews is supposed to look for, that the second coming is going to happen. He says, when you see the abomination that causes desolate, it will be that generation that will see the second coming of Christ. People times often conflate the second coming of Christ with the rapture. There are two completely different instances, right? The rapture of the church happens before the tribulation. The second coming of Christ happens at the end of the tribulation, right? So there's a big difference between the two. He's speaking to a Jewish audience there, and he's making them aware of what to expect. Oftentimes people look at the fig tree that's being mentioned in Matthew chapter 24 and say that that's speaking about the nation of Israel. That isn't true. The fig tree is a demonstration from nature to show you that, hey, when you see these signs, it's the same thing as when you look at a fig coming out of a tree. That is a sign that you've got the summer around the corner. And when you see these signs that I've just talked to you, listen, this generation is not going to skip out on this. They're, they're not going to miss this. So God here is speaking of what he's going to do how he's going to bring these, here's the political terminology, religious reforms, <laughs> right? He's going to remove these, these pagans, false symbols. Verse 3, and it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesied. Okay, understand this so you can develop the context of what's being said here, right? If a false prophet if somebody went up and said that he was a prophet and he said, thus saith the Lord, and he got the prophecy wrong, then what they would do is they would take that guy to the gates, right? Literally to the outer uh, area of the town, right to where the judges were at the gates, and they would stone him to death. He would die, right? They would kill him because false prophets should be uh, killed, right? And What's very interesting is if we kept that standard in this day today, there'd be a lot of dead preachers. Let me just tell you that right now. A lot of dead preachers. Uh, I, some of the prophetic nonsense that's come up in, in recent days has been uh, unbelievable, right? A lot of false prophets, a lot of lies, right? A lot of errors being made here. A lot of things that are just not true. But understand this for just a moment. Get this. In this context... 
the parents of these false prophets will be the one that will take their children to go get stoned. In other words, it will be so obvious that they got it wrong that their parents will be ashamed of them and, and escort them to a place of death for being false prophets. That's kind of heavy. In other words, the picture that it's trying to create for us or that's effectively creating for us is nobody's going to get away with false prophets, right? All of the lies that have been told are going to come out and people are going to recognize it and they're going to realize the errors that have been made. Look what it goes on to say. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed every one uh, of his vision when he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear uh, a rough garment to deceive. And you remember the idea of the culture back then, right? The culture back then, many of the prophets would put on uh, sackcloth. If you don't know what sackcloth is, it's basically they would skin a camel, right? And if you've ever seen the outside of camel skin, it's very rough. No one can sit on a camel unless there's some kind of a saddle on that camel because um, it, it's, it's almost like prickly, right? It's very uncomfortable. So what the prophets would do is they would skin the camel, right? After the camel is dead, they would skin the camel and then they would wear it inside out. And the whole idea was it would, it would make them uncomfortable. And the thought process was as they wore this clothes that made them uncomfortable, it made them more aware of the voice of God when God was speaking to them. By the way, the, the prophet most well known for doing this would have been Elijah and John the Baptist, right? And so it's interesting when you think about it, uh, many prophets would do the same thing, trying to sort of project the picture of them being real and, and that kind of thing. And there's going to come a point in time where they're going to go from being in the place of thus saith the Lord I'm a prophet look at me I'm wearing the clothes that sort of matches look at me I'm a prophet which by the way it's interesting even in the modern day today there are some there are many Pentecostal churches that still do this they have these people that that throw on these weird looking outfits right that are lined on the inside probably silk and everything they don't feel uncomfortable but they look uncomfortable right and these guys wear them that call themselves prophets and of course undoubtedly they are false prophets right but I love the picture that's actually drawn here, right? Let me read this to you in context, and then I'll tell you what it says. It says, they're going to be ashamed, neither shall they, shall they wear a rough garment to deceive, but he shall say, I am no prophet, I am a husbandman, meaning I'm a, I'm a farmer, right? I'm no prophet, I'm a farmer, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth, right? So farmer-rancher, basically. Now, this is kind of a, pic a funny picture because th this is what the Bible gives us a picture of. You're going to have these people walking around in their clothes, you know, their fake prophet clothes, saying, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And when the true word of God comes into fruition, they're going to take their fake clothes off and they're going to go, and people are going to say, I thought you were a prophet. They go, no, man, I'm not a prophet. I've been a farmer for a long time, man. I, I've been a cattle rancher. You know, I'm a farmer, right? I'm not a prophet. And they're going to walk away. They're not going to be so proud of their position anymore because they are going to recognize that the words that they say are false and they themselves are going to snitch on themselves. They themselves are going to reveal the fact that they're false because they know that they're not the real McCoy. Very interesting. I would go through this a lot in Bible college. As a Bible college teacher, I had a lot of students and uh, I was the director of the Bible college for many years. And so um, I, I had a lot more leverage than uh, a lot of people did. And so I would have students that I would give assignments to. Uh, oftentimes they weren't difficult assignments. Uh, I mean, I was a tough teacher, but they weren't hard. You know, they required maybe five, six, seven, eight hours worth of work in order to accomplish the assignment in that week time. And 
I went in and I gave my class, very new class, I gave them an assignment. It was a roughly eight hour assignment. If they had done it right, it would take them about eight hours to accomplish. And so the week finishes, and by the way, it was a pastor symposium class. So these were all men in the class, all of them claiming that they're called by God to be pastors and in the ministry. So typically in a class like that, I, I started off with a very difficult assignment, uh, not difficult in the sense that hard to actually do, but difficult in the sense that it requires some time, right? It requires a, a commitment. And so uh, I would do this and the next week, uh, uh, it doesn't typically manifest in one week. Normally it takes about three or four weeks to manifest, but in this particular case, it manifested in one week. And there was uh, what looked like when I walked into class, there, there uh, looks like there was a little conference that it ensued uh, between a few students and they had appointed a representative who uh, raised his hand and basically wanted to tell me right off the bat, this is their second week of Bible college. Pastor James, we think that your uh, homework assignment is unreasonable and we think it's hard and we think it's difficult. And so I just kind of sat there and I listened and I said, I'd like a quick show of hands of how many people here in the classroom that thinks that this homework assignment is unreasonable, is difficult, and is hard. And of course, there's uh, you know, 18, 20 students in the class and I had about six or seven people that raised their hand. And as the six or seven people that raised their hand, I say, if there's anybody here that doesn't want to raise their hand because they're nervous of the repercussion, right? Then I want you to raise your hand. Of course, there's always one more that shows up because they're a little shy or whatever. I say, keep your hands up. I say, do me a favor. All of you that have your hands up, I'd like you to sit in this corner of the class, right? I'm just, I just, that's it. And so uh, they go to the other side of the class and I look right at them and I basically say, I want your homework assignments, right? None of them had a homework assignment ready. Everybody else in the class had their homework assignment. They turned it in. I looked at the group that's over there and I said, you need to go home right now. Don't even sit in class today. You need to take some time to think about whether or not you are called to the ministry and you need to quit if you can't do what I'm asking you to do. That's not the response that they were expecting me to give, right? And of course, as it does oftentimes happen, because I'd gone through this exercise before, one of the students who's bold enough to represent the whole group says, that's unreasonable. How can you do that? What kind of a teacher tells everybody to quit? That doesn't make sense. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe you're called to be in the ministry? Yes, I do. Do you believe you're called to be a pastor? Yes, I do. Okay, let me ask you a question. Right now, you're a single man, correct? No children? right? Do you have much of an obligation with respect to your own free time? No, I've got a lot of time on my hands. Okay. If you cannot give me an eight hour assignment right now as a single man that has no obligations, how in the world are you going to prepare three to four Bible studies a week at the tune of eight to 12 hours per Bible study? When times are difficult and hard, when you have no energy left, you've been working all day, you have children to attend to, you have obligations presented in front of you with respect to life, the business of the church and everything else. What are you going to do? Go to bed at night and show up in front of the body of Christ and say, sorry, I didn't study. Let's play a video. Quit. Leave. You're not fit. You don't understand the call. If you understood the call, then you would think twice about the process. You would. The, the reality of it is you in essence are false prophets. You're not equipped. And I oftentimes would share with them this very passage, right? Look at what happens down the line with the false prophets of the time. 
when it was time for the rubber to meet the road, they recognized right away the error of their false prophecies and they walked away. I've learned this over the years, folks, and I do not, I have no desire for people to take this the wrong way. But I have learned that people who are called to the ministry are called to live a life of being proven. They're called to do things that are extraordinarily difficult. And it's not easy. Of course not. It certainly is not, look at me, woe is me, the burden of the Lord, right? That's ridiculous. We love what we do. There's no complaints there. But as the days get closer to the coming of the Lord, there will be more and more and more and more false teachers coming out of the woodwork and dropping like flies. Someone asked me recently, James, don't you think you're being divisive in the body of Christ, bringing out all these false teachers? And doesn't the division that you're seeing right now in the church make you sad? And so, no, it actually makes me happy because it's not division in the church. It's God separating the wheat from the chaff. It's God demonstrating who the false teachers are, the false prophets are, and who are the ones that are actually called. These people are going to quit. They themselves are going to walk away because they've not been proven to be that which has been genuinely called by God. Verse six, and one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friend. Now, this is so interesting, right? When you, when you sort of look at this, this is, it, it, it's just such a powerful picture that's being drawn. It talks about this. We looked at the previous chapter, right? In chapter 12, they're going to look upon them whom they wounded and they're going to cry and they're going to mourn. And then they're going to go to him and they're going to say, who did this to you? Who wounded you like this? And he's going to say, it was in the house of my friends. They're the ones that did it. They betrayed me. And look what it says in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. By the way, Matthew chapter 26. Jesus mentions this verse as being referenced to him. He makes it clear. We know that this is a messianic prophecy. We know that this is talking about Christ because Jesus himself identifies that as being the case. And what's even more interesting about all of this is how strikingly true and real this ends up being, right? They're going to recognize it. They're going to know what's happening. Now, this is where I bring up the book of Revelation, right? Because if you understand Zechariah, you're going to understand what it says here in the book of Revelation. Look what it says in verse 8. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. Now think about that verse. That verse is undoubtedly talking about what commences in Revelation chapter 6. 
if you read about the first four seals in the book of Revelation, I, I believe them to be man-made seals. When God allows man to be given to himself, you remember the very first seal is the rider of the white horse. The rider of the white horse is a person who has a bow but does not have an arrow. We are undoubtedly talking about the Antichrist here, who will with his speech and with his promise of peace and all the other things that he brings to the table will establish a mechanism of totalitarian rule that will destroy the people around him. And with his rule, you get the second writer of the horses of the apocalypse, the second seal in the book of Revelation chapter 6, that becomes the rider of the red horse, which is war. War comes as a result of totalitarian rule. It undoubtedly will come as a result of the totalitarian rule represented by the final Antichrist. Then you've got the rider of the black horse. The rider of the black horse represents famine, represents economic failure. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, the little notation that's being put at the very end of that. Hey, don't touch the oil and the wine. In other words, there's going to be a ruling class. Perhaps the World Economic Forum, perhaps the people that are comprised of all the globalists that we see today, who knows? But there will be a ruling class that will be preserved in all of it. And then you've got the rider of the pale horse. And the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that with the rider of the pale horse, there will be death. The death will represent, watch this folks, one quarter of the population of the whole world. One quarter. Then, throughout all the other judgments that we read about in the book of Revelation, once one quarter of the population is gone, you've got three quarters of the population left, and of that population, we will see roughly half, half be killed from that population. When you take a quarter of the population dying, then you take what remains and you take half that population dying, that leaves you with about one-third of the population still being alive. One-third. Regarding the one-third of the population, look what it says. I'll read verse 8 again, right? And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And look what it says about who that third is. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried and they shall call on my name and I will hear them and I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God. The remaining third are going to be the Jews that God is going to preserve through the tribulation. And he will, in essence, through the action of preservation of the Jews, bring them to a place of saving knowledge, and God will reconcile the nation of Israel to himself. If you are watching this online, you will notice that I entitled the message, What Everyone Should Know About the Nation of Israel. Why should everybody know this fact about Israel? Because the Bible says that one day Israel will prevail and will be placed by God's hand directly in the area of prominence. And God will, after that, destroy all of Israel's enemies. Thank you for joining us today for Light on the Hill with Pastor James Cadiz. We'll get back to our study shortly. To listen again, go to lightonthehillradio.com or listen to Pastor James through our Light on the Hill app. It's free and available to download at the App Store or Google Play. We also have a podcast. 
We'd love to hear what God is doing in our listeners' lives, so send us an email today. It would mean a lot to Pastor James to hear from you. We also want to pray for you as we realize these are difficult times for so many. Our email address is radio at calvarychapelsignalhill.com. That's radio at calvarychapelsignalhill.com. As we continue to share God's word on stations across the nation, maybe you'd like to support what we're doing. This would be a wonderful time to make a secure donation at lightonthehillradio.com or give through the Light on the Hill app. Now let's finish up today's study in Zechariah chapter 13. You don't want to be on the side of history that says I'm going to be anti-Jew, anti-Semitic, anti-Israel. That's ugly. We know what God says is going to happen with his ancestrally chosen people. He's going to bring them to a place of reconciliation. Now, does that absolve us of our responsibility of, of witnessing to Jews and telling them about Jesus? No, it doesn't. We have an obligation to do that. I actually think it's a form of anti-Semitism when you don't preach the gospel to Jews, right? Because it's almost like saying, well, we'll let you suffer. You know, God will get a hold of you anyway. That's not fair. It's an ugly way of looking at things. But I will tell you this. The Bible makes it very clear what's going to happen in that day. It gives us a picture of the future of the nation of Israel. And perhaps one of the most foundational and fundamental things we're going to walk away from as we get into chapter 14 and finish the book and actually get into the last book of the Old Testament, we will see perhaps one of the most beautiful pictures of the grace of God being implemented in the lives of the people that he rescues. Now, there's a great picture there. As the church of Jesus Christ, do we replace Israel? No way. We're separate from Israel. But what is remarkable is the pattern exhibited in God's grace being shown to the people of Israel is the same pattern that applies to us in that God has extended his grace to us. And we know we have a hope in a future because of all that he's done for us. Folks, there's something spectacular about that. Come back next time when we'll continue our study in the Minor Prophets. That's right here on Light on the Hill with Pastor James Cadiz. Remember, as a believer in Christ, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. I have found that peace only comes from you. I have found that joy only comes from you, cause all I need is